A few years ago, quite a few years ago now, I read about a study that was conducted into the effect of peer pressure on young people. The participants were told that their eyesight was going to be tested. Some cards would be held up with three lines on them. Line A, line B and line C. The researchers explained that the lines would be different lengths and all that the participants had to do was identify the longest line. Pretty simple. But before the experiment began, nine of the ten participants were told they had to vote for the second longest line. The test was to see what the tenth participant would do. The researchers held up the card. Line C was clearly the longest. But when nine people raised their hands to vote for line B, number 10 got confused. Later on, he explained that he thought perhaps he hadn't been listening to the instructions, and so he better just do what everyone else was doing. And so after a moment, he raised his hand along with everyone else. Then, before repeating the test, the researchers clearly explained again, raise your hand when we point to the longest line. The card was held up again. Once again, nine people voted for the wrong line. This time, the poor teenager hesitated a little bit longer, but then even though he knew it was wrong, he voted along with everyone else. And he wasn't alone. Over 75% of people tested did exactly the same thing. They'd preferred to do something they knew was wrong rather than stand out from the crowd rather than be the odd one out. Wanting to fit in is powerful, isn't it? Not wanting to be different, not wanting to stand out or or be distinct can drastically affect the way we behave, the things we do, the choices we make. And it isn't just teenagers, of course it's not. It's a problem for all of us. It's a problem for Christians. It's a problem for churches. In fact, as we've been seeing, wanting to be like everybody else was a big problem for the church in Corinth. Far from standing out from the crowd, the Corinthians looked just like the world around them. We've seen that that was the case when it came to their leaders. Just like Corinthian society, the church had become obsessed with celebrity speakers And so Paul has been tackling that worldly thinking in chapters 1 to 4, hasn't he? But now in chapter 5, we move on to another issue. Paul is about to tackle the issue of sexual immorality. It's there in verse 1. Have a look there again. He says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, Corinthian society was pretty promiscuous. There was plenty of opportunity to get up to whatever you wanted to. But in verse 1, it seems that not only does the church look like the culture, they've actually gone one step further. They're doing things that even the pagans are shocked by. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, Paul says. In the church, there is an ongoing sexual relationship, probably, probably between a man and his stepmom. And it's shocking. It's even shocking to the people outside the church. And so in chapter 5, Paul tells the Corinthians 
They must take action. They need to do something about this. And the big thing he says is that they must remove this man from their fellowship. They must put him out of the church. Now, church discipline isn't something that I think we particularly like talking about, is it? It's not the kind of thing that comes up over coffee after the service every Sunday. If we're honest with ourselves, we probably think chapter 5 sounds quite extreme, perhaps a bit unloving. And so when it comes to discipline, well, we kind of skirt around it or, or don't talk about it all that much. But the problem is the Bible talks about it. In fact, it says it's essential for the health of the church. And so as you go through this chapter, I want us to see three reasons why Paul says church discipline is important, why we should take it seriously. And the first is that it's for the good of the sinner. Church discipline is for the good of the sinner. Paul says that it's shocking that there is sexual immorality going on in the church. It's even more shocking that it's something that pagans wouldn't be doing. But what's most shocking is not the sin itself, but the church's reaction to it. Did you see that? A man is sleeping with his father's wife, verse 2, and you are proud. I don't think it's clear what exactly the Corinthians are proud of. Maybe, maybe they're proud of the act itself. Later on in chapter 6, we'll see that the Corinthians have a catchphrase, something that Paul quotes back at them. They say, I have the right to do anything. I can do what I want. And so perhaps the Corinthians here, maybe they've got a wrong view of God's grace. A view that says, I am free in Christ, saved by grace. And that means I can do whatever I like. Maybe the Corinthians had such a warped view of grace, such a twisted view of their freedom in Christ, that they were actually boasting in sexual sin as an expression of that freedom. Or, or maybe, as we've already seen in Corinthians, maybe they were just so proud of themselves, so proud of their own gifts, proud of their own wisdom and spirituality, that they become completely blind to the blatant sin going on in the church. Either way, Paul is shocked. He says, how could you possibly be proud of yourselves? Verse 2 Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Far from boasting, Paul says the right reaction to sin is to mourn, to be genuinely saddened, grieved when we see people willfully rejecting God and living for themselves. We should mourn over sin. And then he says we should take action. You should put this man out of the fellowship, he says. Uh, And as I said, on first reading, that that might seem like a bit of an overreaction. Uh, This man has clearly made a mistake. He's clearly sinned. Uh, But removing him from the church, it's a bit rash, isn't it, Paul? But as we read 1 Corinthians, I think we also need to have in mind Matthew chapter 18. Just turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 
uh, with me, just so you keep a finger in 1 Corinthians and flick back to Matthew 18. Um, it's on page 985 if you have a church Bible. Matthew chapter 18. You see, in Matthew 18, Jesus lays out a series of steps that we should take when it comes to addressing a person's sin. And we can see step one is there, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Jesus says the first thing you should do is go to the person, just yourself, go to the person and have a quiet word with them. Gently and lovingly point out their sin to them. And if they respond in repentance, if they, if they admit their sin, acknowledge it and turn to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness, well then job done. Situation resolved. But verse 16, if that doesn't work, move to step two. Take two or three others with you and have another go. If that still doesn't work, step three, bring the issue to the whole church. Verse 17. And if there's still no change, still no repentance, well then step four, you must treat them as though they're not a Christian. Now, turn back to 1 Corinthians 5 with me. 1 Corinthians 5, because it seems that in 1 Corinthians 5, the situation has already reached step four. The man is continuing in unrepentant, blatant sin. The church knows about it. The out, people on the outside of the church seem to know about it. And so Paul says in verse 3, he's made up his mind, he's made a judgment. This man needs to go out of the church. Paul's made up his mind, and so should the church. Verse 4, when you're assembled and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Again, it's strong language, isn't it? But Paul isn't talking about condemning this man to hell. That's not what he means when he says, hand him over to Satan. No, no he's using strong, emotive language to say this man needs to be taken out of the church, taken out of the realm where Christ rules, where Christ is acknowledged as king by those who submit to him as king. He's to be taken from the church and put back into the world, the realm of Satan, the realm of those who do not submit to Christ, who do not live for him. In other words, just as Jesus says in Matthew 18, this man is to be treated as an unbeliever, someone who belongs to the realm of Satan, not to Christ. And again, before we think that sounds harsh and unloving, just look at the reason that Paul gives at the end of verse 5. He says, we do this so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Do you see? In the end, the goal, the purpose of putting someone out of church fellowship is for their good. It's so they may be saved on the last day, on the day that Christ returns. Church discipline is always to be done in the hope that it will wake the person up to their sin. Wake them up to the fact 
that they are living in rebellion against God. And although they might think they can get away with it, although they might be getting away with it in the present, one day they'll be held to an account. One day they will stand before God in judgment. Which means today, now, is the time to stop. Now is the time to repent, to turn away from their sin, and to come to Christ for forgiveness. That's the hope. That is the goal. And I think keeping that goal in mind helps us understand a bit of what the process of putting someone out of the church might look like. You see, if repentance and therefore salvation is the goal, well, then it won't mean preventing them from coming to church altogether. After all, the most important thing for this person is to keep hearing the gospel, to keep hearing about the forgiveness that's available to them in the Lord Jesus. And so barring them from the church altogether, well, that won't help. But it will mean treating them differently. It'll mean treating them as an unbeliever. It might mean asking them not to take communion, not to share in the meal that Christ has given to his people to help them remember him, remember his sacrifice as they come to him in repentance and faith. It might mean not taking communion. It might mean, it also means not treating them as though nothing has happened. I think that's what verse 11 is talking about there. Paul says, don't even eat with them. Don't, don't carry on with this person as though everything is great, everything is just fine, when it really isn't. Don't ask the man how the wife and kids are when you know full well he's having an affair. Don't let them continue to teach a youth group or lead a life group if you know their life is a million miles away from what they're teaching. Putting someone out of fellowship doesn't mean shutting them out completely, but it does mean changing how we treat them. And to reiterate, and this is, this is vital, isn't it? To reiterate, this is not out of judgmentalism. This is not a self-righteous thing, looking down on others and saying, oh, you are far worse, off you go. Now, this is done out of love. Because church discipline is for their good. But there's more to it than that. Paul says it's not just about the individual, as important as that is. It's also about the church. And that's our second point. Church discipline is for the purity of the church. Verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Now, my baking knowledge is pretty limited. The people at Hub will know that it's Catherine, not me, that uh, does the baking each week. But I have got quite into Great British Bake Off over the years, uh, partly forced to, but, but I do enjoy it. And, and pretty much all my baking knowledge comes from there. And so I at least know that yeast makes dough rise. If you put a little bit of yeast into a batch of dough, it'll spread through the entire batch. So the whole thing will rise. And here Paul uses that to illustrate sin. He says it's the same with sin. If you have sin in the church, if we're a batch of dough and you have sin in the church and you do nothing about it, it'll spread. 
That's what it does. Sin is pervasive. Uh, Slowly and subtly it spreads and can infect the whole church. And so Paul says in verse 7, get rid of it. Cut it out. Don't let sin spread. But then look at the reason he gives in verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Paul says the reason you need to get rid of sin is so that you can be who you already are. We looked at this idea back in life groups this week, earlier this week, didn't we? Just flick back again to chapter 1 with me. 1 Corinthians, just back one page. Chapter 1, Paul introduces his letter, and then he says in 1 verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Right at the start of the letter, if you can remember to a few weeks ago, Paul reminded the Corinthians who they really are. He says they're people who have been sanctified, made holy through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And as people who have been made holy, they're now called to be holy. Did you see that? Called to be who they really are. And so in chapter 5, you can see that Paul is just saying the same thing. End of verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so, Corinthians, you have been forgiven. You've been made pure, clean, sanctified, holy in God's sight through the sacrifice of Christ. And now, as those who have been made holy, cut out any sin that remains. Live out your new identity. That's what we've been thinking about in Romans, isn't it? You have been made a new person, given a new status in Christ. So be who you are. Live out your new status. What will that look like? In verse 8, Paul says it'll mean living in sincerity and truth. In other words, it'll mean that we stop pretending. Stop coming to church trying to cover up our sin. And instead, we'll live in the light of the gospel. We'll rejoice in the truth that Christ has paid for all our sin. And so we can come to him in repentance. We can ask him to help us by his spirit to live the new life he has given us. And again, it's important that we see the corporate nature of this. So often we can think, can't we, individualistically about the Christian life. It's all about me and my battle with sin, my personal struggle with sin. But Paul says, no, no, he uses this yeast and dough illustration to show how, the, how sin affects the whole church, not just the individual. And so when we try to cover up our sin, when we put on a facade or, or pretend that it's not all that serious, well, Paul says we actually endanger the whole church family. So we need to take sin seriously. You need to cut it out for the purity of the church. The other problem with covering up our sin, with not living in sincerity and truth, is that it leads to a judgmental attitude towards others. 
You know how it goes. In order to try and convince ourselves that we're not that bad, what we tend to do is get better at spotting other people's sin than our own. It makes us feel better. And the easiest targets for this kind of judgmentalism are those outside the church. It's easy, isn't it, to turn on the TV and judge those that we see or to walk down the street and tut at people that we see. Judgmentalism makes us feel better. It helps us cover up our own sin. And that brings us to our last point. Church discipline is for the sake of the gospel. Look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. It seems that Paul has written to the Corinthians already. And what's clear is that they have misunderstood or misapplied what he said. It seems they've taken a previous warning about sexual immorality to mean, or they should distance themselves from those sinners out there. They should keep away from them. But Paul says in verse 10, no. Now, I'm not talking about distancing yourself from people out there. I'm not suggesting that you all get together and move into a monastery. No, I'm talking about dealing with the sin in here, inside the church, not outside of it. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, do not even eat with such people. You see, Paul says, no, no, you're not to judge the world out there. No, I'm talking about dealing with sin in here, in the church. And so if someone claims to be a Christian, but refuses to stop their ongoing and open sin, then you must not associate with them. You mustn't treat them like they're a brother and sister in Christ. And in doing this, in holding the church accountable, we preserve its witness to the world. You see, whilst we don't judge the world, verse 13 says God will. God will hold each and every person, whether in or out the church, to account. He'll hold them accountable to the way they have treated him. And those who have continued to reject him, well, they will face his wrath on the last day. And so it's our job as Christians, as a church, to be ambassadors for Christ. That's how Paul goes on to describe Christians in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 5. We are told to represent Jesus in everything that we say and everything that we do so that others might come to him and know the forgiveness and new life that we have received already. And so just imagine, imagine if the British ambassador turned up to the UN completely drunk, their, their face splashed across the tabloids for some sordid affair or, or some tax fraud. 
It wouldn't just be the ambassador's reputation that's dragged through the mud. It would be the reputation of Britain, of the country he represents. And the Bible says the same is true for the church. We are Christ's representatives to the world. And so if the world looks at us and sees people who are just as sexually promiscuous, just as materialistic, just as greedy as everyone else, if they look at Christians and they see people who care more about their football team or their home or their comfort than they do each other, well, it doesn't say much for the God that they worship, does it? But you see, Paul wants the Corinthians and he wants us to take sin seriously. Not, not so that we can feel smug or self-righteous or look down our noses at other people. But so the world will see something different about us. You see, being distinct matters. Taking sin seriously and standing out from the crowd matters. It matters because the world needs to see that, that we really believe listening to God is more important than fitting in. It needs to see that we really believe that living God's way is the best way. Not so that we earn his favor or his forgiveness, but because we know we have been forgiven by his grace. We've been set free from sin, set free to live wholeheartedly for the king who died for us. And so we need to take sin seriously so that we can show Christ to the world. And as we do that, we pray. We pray that some would put their trust in him just as we have and so live for him. Let's pray for that now. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Thank you that there is now no condemnation for those who trust in him and his sacrifice for us. Father, we thank you that Christ has freed us from that penalty of sin. And we thank you that he has freed us from the power of sin. So that we no longer need to live in sin. And Father, we pray that we would help one another in that. That we would hold one another to account as a church. That we would take sin seriously. Not so that we can feel good about ourselves. Not so that we can look down on others or judge others. But Father, so that we could maintain the purity of this church family. And so that we could witness Christ to the world. Father, please, in our speaking, in our doing, in everything... May we point to him, may we praise him for his glory. Amen.